0: Now, here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. We are back with Robert Young of Pelton. George Norrie with you. Put your history hat on. We're going to take calls with Robert next hour. We're talking right now about his visit to Libya. Tell me about these Chinese killer drones, Robert. What's going on with those?
1: Well, the reason why I bring people's attention to Libya, because obviously I cover many wars, but I, I, I think Libya is the most interesting one to watch now, is, is you have everything from tribal fighters from Darfur, you remember the Janjaweed mm-hmm. working as mercenaries, and you have these drones called wing-loon drones. They're basically a cheap knockoff of what we call the Predator drone. And the Chinese are selling these at a million dollars a copy. Jeez. Saudi Arabia just bought 300 of them. Uh, the UAE has dozens, and they're going to sell more to places like Pakistan. Uh, and anybody who basically wants to buy a drone that can kill people, you know, from uh, seven miles away. So that doesn't seem that bad on paper until you're actually in Libya and these drones are trying to kill you. So,
0: Did you see any flying around up there?
1: Of course. They're, they're in the air all the time. And, and they're used differently by each side. So not only does... Um, Haftar, who's the east, right, backed by Egypt and UAE and Saudi Arabia, use these wing loom drones, but the the GNA, or the the official UN government, also has Turkish drones. The difference is the Turkish drones are operated by Turkish military people, and they only target military targets. The Chinese drones are used by Haftar's people to hit everything from refugee bases to medics to people like me, so... For example, I was out on the front lines, and we drove out to the, uh, I guess you call it a safe house or the operations house, and there were about four of us in this cluster, and the mortars were hitting, but they weren't that close, and then suddenly they got closer, and I told the young soldiers, I said, you know, they're bracketing us, and so we probably should move out of here and move towards the front Uh line. And they said, oh, no, don't worry, and then boom, another (laughs) one went to the well, no, I mean, multiple drones, I mean, multiple um, mortars. Now, mortars are fired with a tube from about, you know, half a mile away. Um, and then the commander said, oh, look, one just landed over, let's go look at it. I said, I don't think it's a good idea. He walks outside, and boom, they almost hit him with, with a mortar. Now, that means somebody's watching from mm-hmm. and telling people firing the mortar how close they are. So we go back in the house. One of the kids wants his picture taken, and he's standing by an open window, and boom, a mortar blows in the window. And then I said, okay, look, the next one's going to be right on top of us. So as I w- walked behind the wall, a mortar landed in the room and exploded. So My God. that's not the bad part. So the bad part is we then had to take one of the wounded soldiers to a hospital, a field hospital. And the day before, these drones, these Chinese drones, had hit somebody on the front lines followed them, the ambulance back to the hospital, and when the truck stopped and the medics came out with the uh, gurney, they hit them again, and they killed the medics and the rest of the soldiers.
0: Unbelievable. Attacking hospital.
1: So I ended stuff. up doing the same basic thing, driving with the soldier to the hospital, and then just as we're leaving on the airport, the airport gets hit by a drone. So I'm just saying that these are rogue drone operators, I guess if you want to call them that, but these these drones are so cheap, and they're used by people who you wouldn't allow, you know, to babysit your children. So right. Imagine this proliferation in third world countries.
0: How big are these drones, Robert?
1: Uh, well, they're quite big. The the ones that carry um, the missiles, they can carry they can fire up to eight missiles.
0: But they're like little Cessnas? Uh,
1: they, they, they use a Rotax engine, so all you hear is this like, sound, okay. they're flying above. And just before they hit, they, they drop in altitude, so you, the, the pitch of the engine changes. You don't actually hear the missile. You can see the little flame coming out of what is essentially a hellfire anti-tank missile. And it's it's, it's designed to take out armor, but they use it against people and houses and civilians oh and God. whatever. Uh, but the point is this terrifies the people in Libya because they're always up there. And because they don't know what they're aiming for or what they're going to hit, everybody's worried about these drones following them and, and potentially hitting them.
0: And who's controlling them?
1: Well, in this case, they have Libyan operators, because they actually have a drone division, and they have UAE trainers. I don't believe the UAE are pushing the kill button. I believe the Libyans are, because they have such random choices of targets. They just killed some civilians yesterday, and they've been using them on the front lines today. Uh, But they're not used like the Turks use them. The Turks actually use them to target military targets, and they're quite good at hitting those things. It's, it's tricky to use a drone. You know, you can fire it, and it doesn't necessarily always hit the target it's aimed at.
0: Now, these Libyans that are controlling the drones, are these the same Libyans who overthrew Qaddafi?
1: Well, here's, so here's the thing. So Libya is a unitary country that was split apart. And when you talk to Libyans, like when I was talking to the fellow that put Qaddafi's body in his meat cooler, they're very focused on the fact that they want one Libya, one country, one government, and a democratic uh, vote to create that government. And then it breaks down into these tribal things. And what happens is that people come from the outside, because what happens is the UAE and the Saudi Arabia, who are dictatorships, don't want Arab Spring. And you can imagine why, because they would be thrown out. Absolutely. So they're installing these these tough guys like, like Sisi in Egypt, and also Hemeti in Sudan. They're going around the region... Supporting, I guess you'd call them strongmen for lack of a better word. Are these like
0: Bin Laden's all over the place?
1: Well, Bin Laden wasn't a leader per se. I'm talking about a military ruler who will crack down on any kind of democratic okay. dissent.
0: Like Gaddafi did in '69.
1: Exactly, and, and Haftar is a Gaddafiist, and the people that believe in the strongman uh, idea are a The idea that only you know one man can unify a country, like Saddam Hussein, for example, mm-hmm. is, is a prototype. And what's happening now is that the UAE and Saudi Arabia have the ear of President Trump, so they're subverting our foreign policy to support the bad guy. In other words, uh, when Rex Tillerson was Secretary of State, he he supported the U.N. efforts to create a democratic vote in Libya, and there was no question about what our goal was because we're America. Uh, After Donald Trump talked to al-Sisi, he then called Khalifa Haftar, who doesn't speak English, and uh, sort of gave him a little pep talk which then completely reversed the dynamics of foreign policy in the Middle East overnight overnight <laughs> so now we're we're rooting for the strong man and as you know Donald Trump is a fan of uh, people like Putin and and, and strong mm-hmm. men but he doesn't know the history of Khalifa Haftar and he doesn't know what people think about this guy who is essentially a 75-year-old failed general who was reinvented by the CIA, who never really did overthrow Gaddafi, and then was sort of sent to purgatory and then was dragged back in 2011 and then was told to go home by all the revolutionaries, and then was dragged back in 2014 and decided to just start attacking institutions. So it's a complex system, and I'm not here to teach the history of Libya. What I'm saying is we as a nation are supporting strongmen and dictators, which sounds like the 60s. Uh, against the democratic process, against the people who want to vote.
0: Is oil still flowing, Robert?
1: It's about half of the output it used to be, about 1.5 million barrels. And a lot of Libya's money is locked up. So it's not a wealthy country, but there's literally no reason on earth, once they have a democratic uh, government, for them to be a very wealthy, socialized country.
0: Can there be a democratic government there?
1: Well, 80% of Libyans want to vote for a government. Uh, I mean, they may not agree, of course. I, I, I would
0: understand. guess the Iranians are the same thing.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, you have an upswelling of people who want democracy, but they've never actually had democracy. And, and they, see, they see it. They, they experience it. They see that people, young people, get out there, and, and they're part of society, and there's benefits for all. But they've actually lived in a socialized bubble like Syria or any other country that's had sort of bread and fuel and all these things given to them. So there's a gap in reality between what Arab Spring wanted versus what this country can actually achieve.
0: When are we going to get out of some of these countries, Robert? My God. Still in Iraq, still in Afghanistan, still still in Somalia. I don't know how many troops we We're still
1: we've... in Germany. We're still in Germany. Yeah, how
0: many <laughs> troops in Syria have we snuck in?
1: Yeah, we still have troops in Syria, we still have troops in Somalia, we still have troops in about 147 countries around the world doing either training or support or whatever. Um, You know, I'm a believer that we should go in and go out of conflicts anytime we want, that America is there to rescue the damsel in distress, but we're not necessarily there to rebuild the entire nation. And we made the mistake in Afghanistan of starting to dictate to the Afghans how their country would be built. Now, it worked in Iraq because Iraq is is a fairly educated country that has a sense of government and structure. Afghanistan was the poorest country on earth at the time. So places like Afghanistan have come a long way from where they were in 2001, but they can't sustain the level of security that we demanded of them.
0: And we're now negotiating with the Taliban again about coming back into Afghanistan. This makes no sense.
1: No, we're, ne- we're negotiating with the beach talibs. Now you got to remember, I know those guys. I bunked with them. These guys all worked for or with the CIA before.
0: These were the Mujahideens, right?
1: No, these are these are the Taliban mullahs in 2001, late 2001, that surrendered to the U.S. And I'm talking about the people negotiating. Were sent to Gitmo after the State Department said, "Hey, why are those guys working with U.S. Special Forces and the CIA?" arrest them, send them... Gitmo wasn't open then, but they sent them to a ship called the Peli'u. And then they were released. You remember Bergdahl? They traded Mm -hmm. these talibs for Bergdahl and they sent them to Doha. And I call them beach talibs because most Afghans have never seen the beach. So... These people have literally no connection to the Taliban who are murdering people in wedding halls and, you know, assassinating soldiers and whatever. So I don't believe that whatever deal they construct, I don't believe that these old Talibs have any connection with the Taliban that are fighting inside Afghanistan right
0: now. Now, what's going on with Iran and Venezuela? Two more pressure points.
1: Well, John Bolton has been pretty quiet. He used to be stomping around, but... John Bolton presented an idea that we should then engage in regime change, and that meant Venezuela, that meant Iran. Uh, Donald Trump wisely said, ah, not so fast, John, because once we go in, how do we get out? Yep. Nobody had a plan of getting out of these places. So we we talked tough. We destroyed their economy. Uh, we still call them names, but they exist. And just like Cuba existed and still exists, I think these countries will just sort of hobble along until uh, some administration comes in and says, hey, there's business to be had there. You know, we can now do deals. We can work with Iran. And, and Iran is is not, I mean, they're, they're just waiting. I mean, they're the Persian Empire. They can wait for another 1,000 years. It's not like they have to wait four years.
0: They've done it before.
1: Exactly. So we've, we've sort of shot ourselves in the foot because in our haste to demonize Iran, and there's plenty of reasons to demonize Iran, we didn't look at the business opportunities that we used to have. And I remember Libya and Iran were, were sort of come-and-go places for Americans in the 50s.
0: You know, oh, absolutely. And aren't there a lot of Jewish Iranians, people who were born in Iran of the Jewish faith?
1: Yeah, and there's Jewish Libyans, et cetera, et cetera. I'm just... So, so Libya was no stranger to America because we built their oil industry. Uh, Syria was no stranger. My friend worked for Shell in, in uh, Damascus. You know, I mean, we had relationships with these countries and then they went kind of sour in the 70s and the 80s when Reagan decided to demonize a lot of these people, and and, and rightly so, by the way. I mean, they they were fighting against us. Uh, but then under Obama, we we couldn't remember why we hated them so much. We remember the embassy, and we remember a lot of 80s attacks. But the way forward is is to is to move on. Is is to see if we can form a relationship that's beneficial mutually. And now we're sort of heading into a strange area with China, where China was sort of quietly sneaking around, and now we've sort of raised the the verbiage up a notch, Mm -hmm. and, and China is becoming our enemy.
0: As everybody had feared years ago.
1: Exactly. So, I mean, when you aggressively go after a country, just like Gaddafi in Libya, just like the, you know, the Ayatollahs they will come back at you and it may not be impressive or whatever, but it will start to degrade your sense of security and your well-being around the world.
0: Do we have a plan as a government when it comes to all these countries?
1: Well, we do and we don't. I mean, there, there used to be desks, you know, that, that kept tight focus on these people and, and came up with uh, plans. We are adopting sort of a laissez faire approach to foreign policy. And, uh, I remember that Donald Trump once tweeted that we were going to pull all troops out of Afghanistan. And within a day, people from the State Department are on the phone to me saying, have you got any ideas? And I'm like, what, what do you mean? He said, well, we, don't, we, we need to come up with some ideas. And at that time, Mike Pompeo was in charge. Mm-hmm. And they're being sort of led around, by, led around by the nose by these tweets, because you're noticing in the G7, for example, that certain things are stated publicly by Donald Trump in a tweet. And then they're walked back two days later. Well, there's a whole staff, there's a whole group of people that has to form policy and execute policy for that region or that country. So this is becoming uh, debilitating on these large agencies.
0: What about false flags? You know, the Gulf of Tonkin got, got us into the Vietnam War. The, that wasn't real. What about false flags now?
1: Well, if you remember a while back, there, was a, there were two attacks on tankers in the Middle East. One, one was in a port, a port in Fujairah, in which allegedly four tankers were damaged while they're at anchor. And then there was a more serious one in which two ships going through the Straits of Hormuz, which is Dick Cheney's favorite place, mm-hmm. uh, were allegedly hit three times each by some kind of missile or mine. And then there was the famous video shot at 6.30 that night. The attacks happened at 6.30 in the morning. So between 4.30 and 6.30, a boat came out with a bunch of Iranians, and they were literally peeling what looked like a spray-painted Iranian limpet mine off the side of an oil tanker. And what's interesting is that...
0: Was that if, legit?
1: Of course it's not legit, because limpet mines go underneath ships, and oil tankers are double-hulled. And in the first attack, all the damage was nice. done above the water line... In the rear of the ship, where the water ballast tank is, so you can't you can't sink a ship like that. But it looks good in a photograph. If if the Iranians want to sink a ship, they've actually made videos in which they fire missiles or RPGs, and they can sink ships. There was a tanker war in the 80s, if you remember. So this idea for a false flag event was cooked up in Paris in 2017, in a side meeting with the the MEK. Remember the um, Mujahideen Khalk, who are supposedly going to take over Iran uh, once Bolton pulls a trigger. The idea was to trigger some kind of event where we could blame Iran and then begin hostilities. And the funny thing is, it happened exactly in the Straits of Hormuz, which is where the old Dick Cheney rubric...
0: That plan uh, was you know, concocted. They
1: could, sink, they could block the whole Straits of Hormuz and shut down the entire oil industry and forgetting, of course, that Iran sells oil and and actually provides security for that area. So what happened is that everybody called BS very quickly, within a day or so, and they let it all go away. But if you follow up on that, the idea that two oil tankers were hit with explosives is is actually a fairly serious event, but it was badly staged. So if you research, both those ships were in harbor the night before. One was in Saudi Arabia Uh and one was in UAE. And if you look at the height of the limpet mines, they're exactly at the height that when you walk up to a ship and dock. So they were there, placed at the dock, detonated in the Straits of Ramos, and did not sink the ships because they're double-hulled ships. Now, they do blow up because there can be fumes in between the hulls. The sure. But anyone who sinks ships for a living will tell you how to sink a ship, and that's not how you do it.
0: So they were doing it for show.
1: Exactly. And you know how quick they were to say, look, these are Iranians.
0: Yeah, look to at hide them. the evidence.
1: Look, yeah. Yeah, so but, it, was, it was badly handled, let's put it that way.
0: If Iran would only stop supporting Hezbollah, we might be able to get some stuff done here.
1: Well, these are cards that, to, to put on the table, right? Now, now, keep in mind that Iran is no angel and we're no angels. So it's, it's a two-way conversation. I mean, we do terrible things to certain countries, and certain countries do terrible things to us. The, the, the question is, how do we stop it? You know, and, what is the it needs to of start. Iran?